Today on 1196, we sit down with two multidisciplinary artists who have truly done it all. Saul Williams and Ngozi Paul. Be the people. From West Queen West in downtown Toronto, this is 1196 with Saul Guy on Deus. Deus. Say the word artist and what comes to mind. Usually it's an image of the isolated genius painstakingly dedicating their life to the mastery of a single craft. Painting, sculpting, writing, composing, directing, acting. And while this is a romantic notion, in today's world, this archetype rarely exists. Today, writers are public speakers and podcast hosts. Visual artists double as photographers and have become their own in-house marketing departments. Directors are writing and acting and producing the projects that then they have to go on and try to sell. Now, there's always been multidisciplinary artists, but it seems to be becoming a necessity. Why is this happening? Perhaps technology is forcing it to be so. Perhaps technology is allowing it to be so. Perhaps artists don't have to wait for permission to create and distribute their work anymore. While technology affords us the ability to do more than artists were able to do in the past, at the same time, does this increase or decrease the quality of the art? Now, some artists are so talented they can jump through disciplines with ease, but not everyone can. Wearing multiple hats is a choice. Nothing wrong with it in theory. The only issue from my perspective is you may become a master of none. That's not the case with the people who are joining us today. We get to talk with two artists who do a lot really, really well. Saul Williams has crossed as many boundaries of craft and genre that you could think of and executed all of them truly at the highest level. And Gozi Paul has continued to create spaces for art and stories in Canadian theater and television that simply did not exist before she came along. Excited to share my conversations with them today on this episode of 1196. Up first, you can't have Saul Williams on the show without diving into a classic. Here's one off his 2001 album, Amethyst Rockstar, which if you ask me, Kanye West had a long listen to before he sat down and recorded his 2013 album, Yeezus. This one's called Penny for a Thought. You're listening to 1196 with Saul Guy on Deus. Deus. Cancel the apocalypse. Cartons of the Milky Way with pictures of a missing planet last seen in pursuit of an American dream. This fool actually thinks he could drive his Hummer on the moon, blasting DMX off the soundtrack of a South Park cartoon. Niggas used to buy their families out of slavery. Now we buy chains and links, smokes and drinks. They're paying me to record this. Even more if you hear it. Somebody tell me what you think I should do with the money. Yes, Dred, tell me what you think I should do with the money. Exactly how much it's gonna cost to free Mumia. What you gonna do with this freedom? Talk on the radio? Radio programming is just that. A brainwashed and cleaned of purpose. To be honest, some freedom of speech makes me nervous. And you looking for another martyr in the form of a man, hair like a mane with an outstretched hand. In a world of harsh thoughts, reactionary defensiveness, and counterintelligence, what exactly is innocence? Fuck it, I do believe the existence of police brutality. Who do I make checks payable to? A young child stares at a glowing screen, transfixed by tales of violence. His teenage father tells him that that's life, not that Barney shit. A purple dinosaur that speaks of love, a black man that speaks of blood. Which one is keeping it real, son? Who manufactured your steel, son? Hardcore, basing elements at the Earth's core. Fuck it, I'ma keep speaking till my throat sores. An MC told a crowd of hundreds to put their hands in the air. An armed robber stepped to a bank and told everyone to put their hands in the air. A Christian minister gives his benediction while the congregation hold their hands in the air. Love the image of the happy Buddha with his hands in the air. Hands up if you're confused to find tomorrow. Your belief system ain't louder than my car system. Nigga walked down my block with his Rottweiler. A subwoofer on a leash. Each one teach one. The DJ spins a new philosophy into a barren mind. 
Sketch from an extra sketch Something like Rakim said I could quote any MC But why should I? How would it benefit me? Karmic repercussions Are your tales of reality Worth their sonic lace discussions? Suddenly the ground shivers and quakes A newborn startles and wakes Her mother rushes to her bedside To hold her to her breast Milk of sustenance heals and nourishes From the dead to creation Life still flourishes Yet we focus on death and destruction Violence, corruption My people, let Pharaoh go What have you bought into? How much will it cost to buy you out? What have you bought into? How much will it cost to buy you out? What have you bought into? How much will it cost to buy you out? How much it gonna cost to buy you out of my mind? Penny for a thought. Yo niggas is half-stepping. Wasting my time. Please, nigga, what? Talking to me? Please. Baby, 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 please. Can I buy, can I buy a, a nigga a dime of that corner? Baby, penny for a thought. Penny for a thought. How much it gonna cost to buy you out of buying You're it? listening to 1196 with Saul Guy on Deus. Come on, penny for a thought. Think fast, think fast. Come on, time is... Saul Williams, a.k.a. Black Stacy, a.k.a. Niggy Tardust, a.k.a. Martyr Loser King, first made a name for himself in the 90s during New York's explosive slam poetry scene. In fact, he was a slam poetry king and still is. He quickly transitioned into acting, playing the lead role in the Sundance and Cannes award-winning film Slam. When he wasn't afforded the empowering roles he wanted in Hollywood, he turned to music. Since 2001, he's released six critically acclaimed albums, working with the likes of Trent Reznor from Nine Inch Nails, Rick Rubin, and most recently, A Tribe Called Red. Now, if that wasn't enough, he's published five books of poetry and starred in the Tupac-inspired Broadway musical Holler If You Hear Me in 2014. Most recently, Saul released his album Martyr Loser King, which will be accompanied by a graphic novel coming out next year and a film he recently shot in Rwanda. Mr. Williams has performed in over 30 countries, read and performed at over 300 universities, and his invitations have spanned from the White House to the Louvre. From open mics to Broadway, TV to film, CDs to MP3, Saul Williams has truly done it all. It's a pleasure to have him here in the building with us today. I had to get some questions because I don't really know you. Yeah, of course. (laughs) You know, sharing our... uh, long-standing relationship of, of two, two souls, the story of two souls. I want to check in because your most recent project, uh, Martyr Loser King, which deals with hacker culture and so many issues. I mean, you describe it better than I, but I remember you telling me how you found the name Martyr Loser King. Mm-hmm. Were you just having a conversation with your wife, with Anesia? Yeah, it was just, the, it was just an accent attached to Martin Luther King. Right. <laughs> <laughs> a francophone sounding accent going, Martin Luther King. And you were like, yeah. What? Say that again? Well, I love that. What's the status of that project that was, uh, you know, conceptualized? Because you've done a lot of conceptualized work and this was a, uh, you know, a graphic novel, a album and a, a play originally. Right. And it's coming to fruition in yeah. different embodiments. Where does it stand now? So first, let me just say, um, Martyr Loser King was first conceptualized by me because I wanted to put all of my busyness in the same pool. And so I thought, I want to write this story. I had just fallen in love with the graphic novel existing infrastructure, you know, like as a medium, as as a a medium, I had seen, you know, there were just a few books that I read in a row and I I started following the tangents and and seeing the poetry hidden in the frames and and thought, wow, that would be a fun way to tell a story. Because yeah, remember you said something about a graphic novel once where you turned me on to this, where it was like, 
you were showing me frames. Yeah. And you were talking about how you can place so much information in one yeah. page because you could have a frame and then a sign. Yeah. There's the a sign the, in the background of the thing and the and and I could put the poem on the sign. Right. You know what I'm saying? And that sign could lead to, you know, right. whatever. It could be graffiti on a curb. It could be a candy wrapper. But in designing the name of what that candy is, there's a whole world in that. There's So it's, you know, it's, it's, you know, I think that the graphic novel was VR before VR. It's dope. You know what I'm saying? That's dope. And so you you went for the, so you had the graphic novel. So that was the birth of inspiration. Of course, with that, I already knew that when I am working in any process, like music is a form of therapy for me. So I'm always writing songs. I'm always playing with instruments. I'm always like, I'm conscious of it being my main focus. I'm thinking about music. I'm listening to music. I'm dissecting music and I'm, you know, I'm in the music zone. So I knew that songs would come from that story. Mm. However, I started having this sort of creative ideas of what I could possibly do on stage. Like what, you know, like to be able to have the budget to be able to have a, a, a traveling set mm. mm-hmm. when I perform or something that's, it's from that idea that the idea of doing a musical in a fixed place in a theater where people come to see the show so that I could build this world that you would see in this graphic novel and that was inhabited in the sound um, come to life on stage and to be able to perform and go back to the theater, which has always been like my first love and all that stuff. And so to make this story real and rich and it's everything so that it could be something rich enough to come to life. Mm. That's where the idea came from. And so I thought, wow, wouldn't it be great to come up with a concept that I could work on this graphic novel around, find, you know, the illustrators to work with, found Ronald Wimberly. After that, found Morgan Sorn. And then uh, to be able to decide how I was going to deal with the music side of it, started working with Fader and all of this. Not started, I'd already been working with Fader for a long time. and, And so that made a lot of sense. And then in terms of the play, uh, you know, you're very much a part of it. Mm-hmm. How if you hear me came up, just the process of starting to talk to producers about the idea of putting a musical Banff came into play and, and it was very helpful uh, and helpful to the point where we realized that basically we were going to make a movie and not a, and not a play because the advice from the producers ended up being like I'd be more prone to invest in a film. So when that happens and you, you know, you come to the idea, it's formed and then the road turns. What does that feel like? Does it feel like another opportunity? Is there disappointment in there for you? Well, I heard the idea quite a few times before I heard it. You know what I'm saying? Before I actually was like, huh, right, you're like, maybe. Throw yeah. it away. I was like, whatever, dude. Yeah. You're not, yeah, <laughs> you okay. Anyway, yeah, you yeah. don't get it, you know? <laughs> but meanwhile, I, I was starting to have the opportunity to like tour with the album, started working with um, Monsieur Lyon, a designer who started, you know, building this um, software that we were able to interact with on stage mm-hmm. during performances mm-hmm. and, and, and what have you. And, uh, And so having to adapt to the idea of, well, actually I am moving with this thing and it's not as hard as I thought. Mm. I had a few real simple ideas, Mm. which was one, you know, to take the, you know, whatever. 
whatever. Mm. Like if you see the show, you see the show. Yeah. You know what I'm saying? But it, but. <laughs> <laughs> Go to the show. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So I felt like I was getting the opportunity to perform in that sense, but I was starting to get more joy from envisioning this world and writing for it. Mm. And also thinking more and more in terms of directing and in terms of like what it would look like and to be able to deliver that experience mm. on the largest scale. It even goes with the sound. Like when I, I started, as I was working on the music, I was like imagining those sounds in a theater. Right. And whoa, whoa. Yeah. So the films has started making more and more sense. And with that, because I'm still working on the graphic novel, it started informing how I was writing the graphic novel. Mm. And so, in fact, a whole world of new inspirations came into play when I accepted, you know, the possibility of changing this musical play into a film. Into a film. And the musical play can always happen. Right. I mean, they're adapting stuff all the time. Yeah. And we have a script. We have a script for the play, sure do. you know? Was, and it, it kind of, I was thinking about it as you're talking and you, I think, you know, because you have multiple disciplines that you, you express yourself through, I was wondering if, if it feels overwhelming or exhausting at times. Well, this is the thing. This is kind of the energy that I'm normally expending anyway. Mm but maybe it would be a book of poetry here, a film that I worked on here, an album over here, and da 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 It would all be panning out like this, except it wouldn't be as focused. Right. When you find yourself in that new place, though, when you're going to go direct and, they, and it's a new title is assigned that is mm -hmm. supposedly new, does it intimidate you ever? I don't really listen to other, but, but other I mean, people in your say own, about I mean, me. No, for, no, because the first place that that would happen was when people called me a poet. And I was like, well, I never called myself a poet, but I didn't respond like that. It was just like, they'd be like, so you're a poet. And I could only say, well, I write poetry. I feel the weight of a title, but I say, I'm not a director. I don't, I don't know. You guys are talking about apertures and, you know, it's, like, it's, I know what it is to put a team together. Mm. I know how to read chemistry and to be able to build off of, you know, and with a great DP and, and a great, you know what I'm saying, that that's also bringing what they see to the table, like melding worlds. Mm. And and I have an idea of what I want this thing to look like, mm. you know? Yeah. And so I feel comfortable conducting. It's Maybe it's just the fact that I think more and more comfortable thinking in musical terms. So am I ready to conduct? Yes. Yes, I'm ready to conduct. Do you have like a little yeah. a sticker? What do you call it? <laughs> <laughs> the baton. The, yeah, the you should have that on, on set, I think. You should have that on set. It'll, it'll, <laughs> really. um, and, and so I've also admired your ability to move environments. You know, a lot of people will not move so far out of their known environment and comfort right. zone. And you've not only traveled the world, but lived in it for good periods of time, be it living in Europe or mm -hmm. spending time in Africa. I know mm -hmm. you're getting ready to go back. Mm -hmm. And how conscious was that thought? Was it curiosity that takes you to these places? Um, I'm, I'm a student. I love that shit. You know what I'm saying? Yes, it's, it's a sincere, just curiosity. Like I can say easily that when I made my second album, I was thinking the majority of the time, I need to write something that's going to get me able to travel again. You know what I'm saying? Just, just anything. I need to put out something 
because that's going to spin the wheel and I can go and then get on the tour bus and or arrive in the city and wander and get lost. Mm. It's the same sort of thing that I get through literature and get fed through by literature and through music um, and through film is the more that I'm able to see the world and connect the dots between cultures and variations in culture and sound and relationships to each other and the workplace and, and what, how fun is spelled and lived <laughs> and what the beer is like and what, you know, what all, whatever all this shit is, the more I can arrive someplace like home and see something happen and be like, you know what? That's actually, it's the same way there. And we call it this, but, but and, and at for one way it's trivial, right? Mm. But in another way you get gain this perspective at home where it's like, oh, that's funny. You know, at home, I see that the identity politic is the thing we're circling around, right. you know, and, and, right. uh, and you're claiming to belong to this. You can, oh, here we go. Oh, okay. We're saying break the binary, but we're so stuck on the binary because we're seeing everything in black and white. You know what I'm saying? And it's like, it's funny. How, how do we like enhance that? And how are we inhibited? Well, you know, in this culture, you know, after they had this atrocity occur, it was based on this sort of like binary, you know, opposition. And it blew the walls off of both so that no one identifies with the binary there. But that's because of tragedy and circumstance. How can we take our old tragedy and not have to create a new one so that we can learn, right. learn from, from that shit and propel the, the progress and process of, of how we think and relate to each other and how we identify mm. since that's so important to us here, you know? Right. And so, uh, so traveling shakes it up mm. in ways where I, you know, go to Rotterdam. You're like, wow, this feels like Brooklyn. You know, and you taste a, a roti there. You're like, it is Brooklyn. <laughs> and you got... <laughs> and Brooklyn's and, even a Dutch word. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> you're like, okay. Yeah. Right. Hmm. You're listening to 1196 with the other Saul, the more poetic Saul, Saul Williams. You shared some wild stories of the way that the art almost boomerangs back or people sampling your work or presenting new projects. And I've always kind of been fascinated by this this idea. I think it's the thing that sticks with me the most is the ripple of, of what you create and kind of not knowing once you share how it how it goes out in yeah. the world and how it impacts people. I just was wanted to know about if there's something there that really blew you away of how you expressed and did what you did and let it go. And it maybe through your travels or whatever, came back in a moment where you... Okay. I'll try to speak to it in a specific, because I'm thinking first in a general. Mm -hmm. When I first started writing poetry, felt like I was going around to these poetry readings and for for my generation and, and, and I guess those that follow the idea of like, you know, seeing the cycle of poetry come back, but coming back in this way, mm -hmm. you know what I'm saying? And and they were calling it slam and all this stuff, but either way, it was just like, it wasn't really new, but I felt like there was a, a few, I don't, I would still don't know how to articulate what the initial epiphany felt like. But what I, I say that simply to say that I knew that, the, that all of that stuff was open source, that everything that I was uh, dabbling in there, that, I was part of my incentive in sharing it mm. was that I thought it would make everything easier. Huh. It, it's open source. So let's all use this. This is, you know, this is open source. It's like 
torrent or yeah, some shit. You know what I'm saying? Yeah, yeah. bit torrent or something. Exactly. Yeah. So it was it was open source. And the way that I latched into it was because it was open source from, you know, the the people that inspired me that were there before I encountered this thing, you know? So yes, of course, to spin the wheel forward and and you know, and you hear whatever, you know, you see poetry in the Beyonce project. Yeah. And you go, that's beautiful. Yeah. Yeah. Exactly. Exactly. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? Yeah. Or you laugh, you go, oh, whoa, <laughs> really? <laughs> really? I remember when uh I remember when Columbia didn't want to put out my first album because I don't know. I don't know if it was the poetry or the right. <laughs> whatever. They were just like, that's not hip hop. Yeah. So you see the thing progress and you're like, ah, oh, that's awesome. Hmm. That's, it's awesome. So, so one, on one hand, you talk about influence. Right. And that's, I'm not saying that's my personal influence. I'm speaking in general about this family of poets that pushed through this, this moment that woke up to this not exactly new form of poetry, really at all, but this new moment well, in the cycle. That's interesting. It's not actually new. It's just almost a rediscovery. Yeah. I was talking with uh, Rupi Carr about her poetry and I was trying to describe it. And I realized I said something so silly because I was like, yo, the short form of your poetry is so powerful. You know, and then I realized I was like, wait, but poetry is short form. <laughs> and what I was thinking about actually was more around the context of that I was receiving it in because mm -hmm. I was receiving it yeah. in a feed, yeah. in an Instagram feed as yeah. opposed to the book. Exactly. And so I I started to think of it in this Twitter thought or something that, well, yeah. that it had been, and of course- Well, that's the thing. That's what's so beautiful about how it all progresses. I mean, like there was a time where I was writing in definitely like 140 character things. It was way before Twitter. Of course, you know, the, the whatever part of me could go, I have those journals. Right. Go back. I'm going to show that I'm going to share my, uh, Twitter. <laughs> my tweetable, you know, whatever. But there's another generation of poets and who are or haiku artists or what have you who are there. And it's beautiful. Right. I, I mean, I'm, I'm so impressed sometimes with, with some of the stuff that I mm. encounter. I mean, I'm, yeah, there's, uh, there is something beautiful about the the short you know what can be said in so little right. words and and how much it can you know touch you always a pleasure man always a pleasure that was the incomparable mr saul williams incredibly happy to have him here on 1196 an incredible and unique artist full of inspiration whenever we speak our, our conversation always arrives at music so, of course, we got into the impossible question of your favorite song. Here's what he said. I have songs that have stuck with me more than others. You know, like Glory Box by Portishead, for example. Hmm. Like that song has lived through like this whole like panoramic thing of much of my life from the first time I heard it to not wanting to not hear it. It made me understand something. I kind of learned something. And there were worlds kind of hidden in that song for me. You're listening to 1196 with Saul Guy on Deus. Deus. So tired of playing. 
Listening to 1196 so with Saul Guy on Deus. Ngozi Paul is a producer, director, writer, and actor, a prolific talent in Canadian theater, film, and television. She truly does it all, not simply because she can, but because she realized early on in her career that she needed to in order for the story she wanted to tell to get made. Ngozi is best known for her role as star on global television's critically acclaimed and award-winning series, The Kink of My Hair, which was also produced by her company, Ngozika Productions. She was also an original cast member in the theatrical production of the same name, which was the longest-running Canadian show to ever play at the Princess of Wales Theatre here in Toronto. On screen, she's played opposite Don Cheadle and Chiwetel Ejiofor and had a leading role in the Genie Award-winning film, short hymn, Silent War. On stage, Ngozi played a young Nelson Mandela in the Toronto production of In the Freedom of Dreams, the story of Nelson Mandela. She was featured in the Toronto performance of the Vagina Monologues and was the recipient of the prestigious Tyrone Guthrie Award for her work with the Stratford Festival. She also has the distinction of being part of the original creative team for Canada's first black television sitcom, Lord Have Mercy. Most recently, Ngozi came by 1196 as her latest production, The Emancipation of Miss Lovely, which she wrote and starred in, was set to take stage. Keep in mind now, the play went on to be nominated for six Dora Awards, winning two, including the Outstanding New Play of the Year. Ngozi Paul, welcome to 1196. It's quite the impressive resume. Now, I've seen your work on screen and on stage. Your productions always seem to take on typically unseen narratives. Why do you find it so important to craft these type of stories? Well, first of all, I feel like everything is built you know what I'm saying? So if it's not there and somewhere it, it exists in your imagination, then, you know, if you build it, they will come. Field of Dreams had a very big impact on my life. <laughs> um, but I but I think that uh, I think that's that that is progression. That's evolution. That's creation. That's the purpose. Mm. Being creative is is building something that isn't necessarily there or uh, finding a reflection that feels true to you. And if that's not there, then, you know, you go out in search of it. Mm. Yeah. And so you, you've you been, I mean, for me, you talked about The Emancipation of Miss Lovely, which is your new play. Yes. You've been talking about sharing your vision for it and the idea for at least a couple of years, if I can remember. Totally. I actually wrote the first draft of it five years ago. Wow. 
ideas are, they often come to creative people, but execution, delivery, and getting to the point where you put something on stage or you share it is difficult. Tell us about those stages of the process, if you can. Yeah, the first draft was written literally five years ago. I was working on the first time project, which is another project I've been working on for years. And that's the thing is endurance, I think. Great piece of advice that I got pretty early on was just to, if you want to see something completed, you kind of need to be the one. Like people will come and go in the process, but you need to be the one to see it through to the end. In this particular iteration, I was working on the first time project, which is a project about women's first sexual experiences. And uh, I was in South Africa uh, with Debbie Young. And she was like, uh, you know, consummate artist that she is. She challenged me. She was like, you can't ask women to share their first sexual experiences without being willing to really delve into your own sexual narrative and your own uh, sexual agency. I was like, oh, okay. <laughs> so I started working on it then. And it was in South Africa. I'd heard of Sarah Bartman before. And so the play is about, you know, women and sexuality, you know, in the 21st century. Um, and it's mirrored with the story of Sarah Bartman, who was a South African Khoisan woman who uh, died in 1805 and was in what they called at the time human zoos. Um, and she was put on display uh, because of the shape of her body. And I was, and she's South Africa. So I was in South Africa and I started to learn about her story, which is bananas to me, you know, but there's a lot of crazy stuff in the world. And I, and I just felt that it was an important thing to flip the gaze of these kinds of stories because, you know, the world is colonized. We know this, um, and what if we saw things from a different perspective? And if I'm trying to look at myself differently, then maybe I need to try and build a world where the gaze is shifted. And, and uh, Sarah Bartman's story was a conduit for that. So yeah, work on it, work on it, work on it. Did a workshop production of it. But when you put on, when you say you put on a workshop, just for like, so I don't we, think everybody necessarily understands. So you have an idea, you've written this. Sure. You're inspired by this woman, Sarah Bartman. You're ready to workshop the play at Summerworks. What does that consist of? You you start off with sort of like the raw material. You you start off with a lot of pages, a lot more pages, you know, like if the play is 60 pages now, you start off with 120 pages and uh, you whittle it down, you whittle it down and you have to, I guess, edit. You have to sort of distill and get the most potent material. And so Summer Works is an amazing festival. It's a curated festival. And you put on a show when you're in the theater, you've got, I think, half an hour, 45 minutes to set up. So it's very basic. It's not big sets. It's not, you have like, you know, one lighting designer for the entire festival. So it's just about the material. It's just about the story. And that's what a workshop production looks like. Is there an audience? Yeah. Oh, yeah. Okay. Yeah. Yeah, no, no, it's like it's 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 Canada's biggest uh, theater festival. Yeah, there's an audience and and people buy tickets and a lot of really amazing work comes from right. summer works like uh, the the butcher that the Mervishes just picked yep. up was a summer work show. Okay. Obviously, this show is a summer work show. It's 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 a really great because with theater you need an audience. You're connected. You're there right now, and uh, we're all in this thing together. So, at least that's how I feel. It's interesting. Part of the form, though, is is like you do that in other forms, mm-hmm. like music and stuff, but mm-hmm. you never get to really say like, hey, we're just trying something here. Yeah. 
I can imagine feedback like that is massive. So mm-hmm. you do the summer works workshop two years ago, mm-hmm. you get the feedback, then mm-hmm. what happens? Uh, so, uh, what happened with me, cause everybody's path is a little bit different, but what happened with me at, after that was, uh, I actually was looking for a sustainable way of doing this work. And after I did that, cause I mean, I really did pay for it myself and, and, and that's taxing cause you do it and it was a big success and it was sold out. <laughs> And then like the tickets are $15 or whatever. So the entire box office doesn't pay for people's salaries. So it's like, oh man, how am I going to do this? Um, and so I went and I traveled and work, continued to work on other things and tried to find a way to do it in a sustainable fashion. And Crow's Theater, an artistic director, uh, he came and saw the show. And so he invited me to be in his season. And you apply for money and you go to donors and you get funders and you go to the community and you put it together. And, you know, you like, I mean, I'm condensing literally like 12 months of work into two minutes. You know, I saw you doing a happy dance the other day because you someone had confirmed that they were going to contribute to your play because yes, I was jumping up and down. You were literally jumping up and down. Um, I find it interesting that theater still has a functional patronage model where people who love the craft and are in a position to do so that aren't necessarily motivated commercially, although if something scales, they get to participate, allow for a really important play like this to be made because mm-hmm. you have to go and ask for the community to support you. Mm-hmm. And you were successful in that. Yes. So congratulations. Hey, thank you. <laughs> well, it's unusual, though. Where patronage usually exists is with larger institutions. Because patrons understand giving money to institutions like the opera or Stratford or Canadian stage. You know, they understand that. There's a whole mechanism that exists and it's generational, you know. But trying to find a patron when you're, you know, not from that community mm-hmm. um, and you're first generation Canadian, mm-hmm. it's, it really is about, you have to cross that line. But you did it. Yes. In this particular, yes, I did. And do you, <laughs> yeah, at any point within, so you, you do that, then you're in what you're in now, which is mm-hmm. your rehearsals mm-hmm. and you stage the play. Yeah. And, it, and you know, and it's, it's, uh, it's so interesting. I actually have not had this kind of conversation about the process with anyone. Um, it's really Interesting to hear it condensed into such, you know, like a few sentences because all along the way, and that's actually part of creating, I feel, is you you face your fears to cross certain lines. You know what I right. mean? Oh, this place about sex. Mm, my mom, right. you know, <laughs> oh, my dad, you know, oh, I need money. I got to talk to someone and ask for money. Mm, that's really hard. You is face that the face fears. you make? <laughs> yeah, to myself. Yeah. When I find out what I have to do. <laughs> and then you. It, it's a grimace. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. And then you kind of like, okay, right. like you have to cross that line. Yeah. You know? So what is the emancipation of Miss Lovely? I wanted to uh, talk about sex and sexuality because that's what the play is about. Okay. Right. And um, how we see ourselves or how I see myself as a woman in this world. You know, like there is a lot of sex, sexual content blasted at you in many different ways. But for the most part, there's all this sexual content out there. But most people, and I say particularly women, just don't know themselves. They don't have a relationship with their own bodies. They don't have a relationship with um, pleasure, their own pleasure. Um, They don't even know how to advocate on their own behalf. 
you know, even when it comes to consent, like all of these very, very blurry lines um, uh, is something that I think that's just sort of like worth exploring. And in terms of women having agency over their own lives, I think sexuality and uh, how we deal with our sex, and I mean sex, the act of sex, um, is at the center of it. So is that what's at the center of the play? Uh, yeah, the, at the center of Emancipation of Miss Lovely is self-love and really self-knowledge, most of my work, and, uh, and turning the gaze around because Sarah was put on display supposedly for the shape of her body and uh, the shape of her vagina and the shape of her bum. And then she was dissected and put on display in the Museum of Natural History for over 200 years. Um, yeah, in France. And wasn't returned back home until 2002. And I think that the irony is the objectification of women that is also internalized that hasn't ended and it's 2017. It's, it's, I mean, and, and I think for us to really move things forward, we have to, uh, we have to look at that. We have to look at it and challenge it and, uh, and get to know ourselves uh, differently, not from the, the male gaze, but from our own. What is your, your hope for the play? You know, I don't know how other people feel, but for me, the world is bananas right now. Every time I like look around, I'm just dumbfounded by what's happening in the world, like dumbfounded. Listen, I know I'm Canadian, but I think it's impossible to ignore the president of the United States of America. I'm beside myself. Like politically, what's happening in the world and then just sort of like this, this um, fever pitch of popular culture and, and, and media and Instagram and Twitter and Snapchat and Facebook and all this. It's like, a, I find it quite overwhelming. It's a lot. So, you know, my hope for this production and actually most of them is just like to one, have a reflection for some people to have somewhere to go to have an outlet to understand that we're not in this thing alone, you know? And uh, we're not in this thing alone. We can grow, we can change, we can evolve and hopefully enjoy. Not even hopefully. Joy is a very key part. I'm, I'm happy if the community has a place to gather where they can have a cathartic experience and experience some joy, some laughter, and maybe a shift in thinking that can lead to some level of healing. It's interesting because I hear you say like the performance gives you the thing that we're kind of looking for in these phones. But, you know, it's like my sister says, our connection is our greatest disconnection, right? Yes. You've got this like. Ooh, that's a good one. Eh, she's that's smart. That's a good one. Yeah. What's interesting is that for me is that kernel of your creative energy kind of grounds you into this, into some sanity in a world that is hard to navigate at times. Oh, yeah. If I would be at Cam H if I wasn't if I wasn't an artist. It's the mental health center. And I'm I know that actually. Like and and I can always take a temperature. If I'm not being creative, then like things begin to stagnate. It stays inside. It ha it needs an outlet. It's like hundred percent my sanity. Mm. Because otherwise, what am I supposed to do? Just accept what I'm seeing here? <laughs> like what? Because right. if I'm, I mean, I'm, I'm a black woman. Hello. <laughs> As a black woman, I mean, God bless anybody who's a black woman and doesn't have some type of an outlet. Because then what are you supposed to do with this life with, that you've been handed? Because mm. it doesn't make any sense. Mm. Not even just a black woman, just a woman. Like if, if the things that we're handed, we're supposed to accept that. I can't. I hear that. And I understand 
Thank you so much, Miss Ngozi Paul. This has been great. So here's what happened. So let me tell you about that time when... So what had happened was... I have a story to tell. So here's what happened. Who y'all talking to, man? And now it's time for Here's What Happened with Saul Guy on 1196. So what had happened... Similar to our guests today, I've had the great fortune of moving through different disciplines of art, from music to film, television, visual arts, to activism, which is an art unto itself. When you're making that leap, it's quite terrifying. And what you need is people to believe in your ideas. Mentorship and guidance is key to cultivating any creative craft. I found myself years ago at this point where Music was no longer satisfying me. I wanted to get into television. I'd formed a partnership with a a childhood friend of mine, Josh Thome, who was really an activist, and he'd done one short film, a documentary. And we had always asked ourselves why our worlds of entertainment and activism didn't come together. And we had a simple idea where we wanted to take musicians and celebrities around the world and connect them with young people who were doing extraordinary things to change their communities. The name of it was For Real. And we realized after we'd made the pilot with Kanon in Kenya that we had something special. And we started shopping it around uh, throughout Vancouver, where we were living at the time. Specifically, we needed a production company that had experience to partner with us in order for a network to invest the kind of capital that it takes to truly produce a show for television. And one by one, we had incredible meetings with the same results. People loved the idea. They saw there was something there. They liked what we were presenting. They knew it was new. They, they recognized that it was fresh and it had legs and they wanted to control the entire thing. They wanted to move us out of the creative driver's seat and to produce it themselves and really sideline us from having creative control, which for independent spirited artists is, is a big red light. Now, The list was getting shorter and shorter. Um, And then a friend of mine, McLean Greaves, uh, rest in peace, hooked up a meeting with probably the most high profile guy in Vancouver at the time. And still a gentleman by the name of Chris Haddock, who's a a legendary writer, director, producer in in not only in Canada, but globally. uh, Such hits as Da Vinci's Inquest and Intelligence, a writer on Boardwalk Empire. And so we walk into this meeting with Chris and his right hand woman, Laura, And the meeting went relatively well, as they all had. And as the meeting was winding down, Chris and I had a kind of one-on-one moment. And he he looked across the table at me and and he he asked me, do you have a family? And I said, well, yeah, I was married at the time and I have a one-year-old daughter. Her name is Soleil. And he looked at me in the eye and he said, well, how do you eat? Which is a bit of a strange question to ask someone you've just met in a business context. And But I answered quite immediately, without thinking about it. And what I said to him was faith. And I remember he looked at me and he shook his head and the the meeting carried on. The next day I got a call from Chris Haddock and he said, Hey man, you know, I don't executive produce or or do other productions outside of my own, but I really believe in what you guys are doing. And if you'd like, I, I would be willing to executive produce your project. I was elated. Of course, immediately I was like, wow, that, that would be phenomenal. He said, great. I'm, I'm going to, uh, I'll fax you over an offer sheet. Yes. It was a fax you don't know what a fax is, Google it. Um, And my elation turned to immediate dread because I assumed that he was going to, again, push us out of the creative driver's seat. But what happened was actually the opposite. We got one sheet of paper, which is rare. Anyone who's got a contract before knows usually it's many, many pages. And the paper said in very plain English, very specific things. 
said he would give us a place to work, said he would give us a phone to use, said he would, if we were to get a broadcast deal, we could decide whether we wanted to pay him and his company between 5 and 15%, which was the industry standard for an executive producer. And he said he was going to give us $5,000 because he knew we were broke, which we were. And the lawyer we were working with at the time basically did a backflip and was like, sign this immediately, which, which of course we did. And moving forward began an incredible mentorship and collaborative process where not only did we get the guidance and the experience to learn how to produce a television show, we formed an incredible bond and friendship that continues to this day to the point where when we were negotiating our deal with CTV and MTV and they offered us, I don't know, 6% for the executive producer, we negotiated aggressively for 15% because Chris Haddock and Laura are the best in the business. And sure enough, they said yes. But most importantly, the lesson was that you can never take from an independent spirit what they will give you if you afford them space and if you build trust so that's the story of how For Real came to be, how I made my initial transition from music to filmmaking, and how giving, not taking, is not only the greatest currency, but the foundation of how you create great art across all disciplines. 1196 is produced by Saul Guy, Reza Daya, Chris Penrose, and Megan Eliza. Follow us at Deus Creates. One, two, three.